is our last one. I can't believe it. This is our last one in this series, and uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to have another one beginning in next February, subject to be announced. Also, I want you to know, uh, several people have asked me if I've ever done uh, the book of Revelation, and the church has actually asked me to teach on Wednesday nights the book of Revelation, so uh, I'll, I'll be sending you something on that, but it'll be beginning in January, the book of Revelation every Wednesday night, I think about 6.30, so you might write that down, and uh, if you're on my email deal, you'll be getting uh, that as well, so uh, the book of Revelation, Wednesday nights here in January, all right? Uh, no, it will be in Ellis uh, Parlor right down the hall. You walked right by it when you, if you came in this way. Okay? All right. Uh, you know, here we are. We had a great turkey dinner, uh, getting ready to have Thanksgiving and Christmas, great holiday season. But, you know, there's really another holiday. There's a real movement towards a new holiday called Festivus. <laughs> His Holy Spirit last week, and now this week he's switching to what you might call an application. And it's kind of a famous passage. Many of you have uh, memorized it. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, what Paul's doing here is using the image of a priest, an Old Testament priest, and they, they were to take unblemished lambs and sacrifice them there at the temple. Lambs, you know, animals without sacrifice, without blemish, I mean, without uh, any kind of defect, without any kind of blemish. They were supposed to take the best that they had and, and kill it and put it on the altar to be burned. And the idea, and you can read this in Leviticus chapter 1 if you desire, but uh, the idea is that because of sin, you had to approach God through a sacrifice because of, of your sin. And so everyone was supposed, who had sin was supposed to bring an animal there. The uh, priest would uh, slay it and then cut it up, and then they would put the body on the altar, the dead body on the altar, and they would burn it and the smoke would rise up to God symbolically, and it says that the aroma of the dead animal, the sacrifice, would be a soothing aroma to the Lord. If you're like me, you're going, how can that, that, that can't smell good. But the point is, it, it, it was a soothing aroma to the Lord because of sin. They were offering a sacrifice for their sin, which means they were confessing and repenting of their sin. That was the, the heart attitude of offering the sacrifice there at the temple. And so Paul was using that image to convey to his audience, him being Jewish and, and a good number of the audience there in the church at Rome was also Jewish. And so they would get that image uh, quickly that, that he was using. Uh, except he, he was using a different kind of sacrifice now because Christ died and his sacrifice, his own bodily sacrifice on the cross was perfect and it 
covered all the sins, past, present, and future, of all time. It was a sacrifice of infinite value. So you no longer needed any dead sacrifices, so to speak. So Paul was saying what's changed now that you're in Christ is God requires you to give your living sacrifice, meaning you need to give of yourself. You need to commit yourself to Christ and follow him and give him your life. That's what he was saying there. So it's a total commitment. Uh, you're sold out. You're all in, however you want to put it. You may have heard the joke about the chicken, uh, what the chicken said to the pig. The chicken says, let's donate that word to that worthy cause, you know, such and such cause. And so the chicken says, how about if I give an egg and you give the ham? <laughs> and so the pig says, wait a minute. For you, that's a contribution. For me, it's a total commitment. <laughs> right? And, and that's what Paul's saying here in, in Romans 12.1. God wants you totally all in. He wants your life. He wants you to now live for him. God is expecting us to give ourselves. He's given us so much, and that's why he says, I urge you by the mercies of God. Think of all the mercies that he's covered in the last 11 chapters, all the blessings that God has given them in Christ just overwhelmed them with all this stuff. And what's funny, yeah, so many people actually, when they, when they think about that, they think, well, I think what I need is more blessings. I need more good stuff. Is there any other gifts, you know, that you can give me? That's kind of the way the human race thinks, right? He's a God of love. Just keep giving me more love and more blessings and more. But what Paul's saying is if you want more, God requires you to give yourself to him. And in that living for Christ, you'll be blessed completely. So as you give yourself to Christ, then you experience that Christ-controlled life. You're changed from the inside out. You become a mature Christian. And that is the extra stuff that we all need beyond what God has already given us. So uh, it's, a, it's an application to turn your life over to Christ and now live for Him. Before Christ, you lived for yourself. It was all about me. But now, it's all about Christ, and you, and you live that way. So God's expecting us to give ourselves completely. Uh, when I was in high school, I had to read the book, and I'm sure you did. I actually saw the, there's an old-timey movie, too, back, from back in the 30s, A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, great classic uh, masterpiece. And uh, in, that, in that book, you may remember, uh, Christ, uh, you know, as we think of Christ as being a substitute and a sacrifice, that's really what that book was about, you know. Uh, in the Tale of Two Cities, Dickens said uh, these two, he developed these two characters, these two men, uh, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. And they looked very much alike. They loved the same woman. They were in the same society there in England. But they were different as far as character and integrity. And uh, Charles Darnay was a man of great character and integrity, and Sidney Carton actually uh, secretly, you know, really liked the guy and admired the guy and everything. Um, 
And then at the, at the end of the book in the movie, uh, Sidney, uh, Charles Darnay has gone to Paris to try to do some good for some people there, and he's been arrested. It's during the French Revolution. And he's arrested, and he's in the Bastille. And the next day, he's going to be executed. They're going to guillotine him for actually being a good guy. And so Sidney goes to Paris, and for the woman and for the man that he most admires, he goes in and he drugs uh, Charles Darnay and, gets the, and bribes the jailer to take him out, and he takes the place of Charles Darnay. He's the substitute, and he sacrifices himself. Sidney substitutes himself in the Bastille. Darnay goes free. And walking to the guillotine, the great pitcher, Ronald Coleman. Remember Ronald Coleman? <laughs> you have to be uh, uh, an old movie buff or, or have gone back in that time to remember Ronald Coleman, but he was great. And his, his, great, <laughs> his great line, you know, I think he probably won the Academy Award for this one line. He's going to the guillotine, and Rodney Coleman says, it is a far, far better thing than I have ever done. It is a far, far better place I go to. Far, far better rest I go to than I have ever known. Great. How's that, right? <laughs> My best Ronald Coleman? I mean, come on. <laughs> and so that, that just illustrates the, the substitution and the sacrifice you know, that Christ has done for us and now we give our life to him as well. We now live for him. So uh, in Romans 12, 1 there, uh, because of everything Christ has given us, Paul says, I urge you. In other words, I'm, I'm telling you what you really need to do. This is my best advice. It's very important. Therefore, and the therefore ties it back to the previous stuff he's already written, based on all the stuff that Christ has done for you and God's given to you. All the grace and mercy. By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies. Present your bodies. I mean, physically step up. When you think about it, it's a great analogy because if we speak, let's say we go speak for Christ, we're what? We're using our mouths, our tongues. If we read God's word, we use our eyes. If we listen to the preaching on Sundays, what are you doing? You're using your ears. If we go out to serve, we use our feet and our hands and everything. So it, it's a great analogy to say present, to say present your bodies. And so we, we step up, we show up, and, and give all in a physical sense to Christ in serving Him. So I, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So the old sacrifices you're aware of in the Old Testament, there was a dead animal. We're asking you as a live person to present your bodies. But in what way are we sacrifices? In that we sacrifice our agenda, our goals, our aspirations, everything we always wanted to be and do, all the acclamation of the people that we want people to give us, we sacrifice that to represent Christ and to glorify Him. Now it's all about Him. It's no longer about me. 
So that, and that's the sense of being a sacrifice. But it's also a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God in the sense that we no longer decide, you know, that we're going to compartmentalize God and just, you know, be good on Sundays or just give part of our life or just give it when we have time. Now it, we're all in, we're completely in, which is the way God wants it. It's based on his rules and how he wants us to live and present ourselves to him. It's all about him. Uh, and so that's the holy and acceptable sacrifice, that we do it his way and that it be all the time. Okay? Uh, and, of course, the Old Testament, they were to present the best as well. God wants the best of you, and they were to give the best animal, unblemished, right? And so the same way, the holy and acceptable, God wants your best. He doesn't want your spare time. He doesn't want just a little bit. He wants the best of you. He wants all of you as well. So we are living sacrifices that are, that are holy, righteous, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's the way you worship God. That's the best way to worship God is to give of yourself. You don't just go through the motions. You just don't give a little money. You give yourself. You're, you're all in. It's all of you, all of me, right? And so then in, chat, in verse 2, he gives a, a couple of commands, and he starts out with, and do not be conformed to this world, and so it's a negative command, you might say. Uh, stop being conformed to the world that you live in that's in rebellion to God, right? And so the world is full of nonsense. It's full of depravity and, and, and evil and horrible things. So you're obviously not to be conformed to that, not to be a, a part of that uh, at all. But the, here's the problem with being conformed or not being conformed is the peer pressure is overwhelming. The peer pressure is incredible. You know, we first noticed that, I think, in a really big way when you're a teenager. I mean, teenagers are just overwhelmed by peer pressure. We all are to a certain extent, but it's most obvious then. You know, I, I remember coming home and telling my parents when I was a teenager that I was going to some nightclub or something, and they went, what? And I said, yeah, all my friends are going. And they use the, the typical analogy. Well, if all your friends were jumping off this cliff, would you follow them? And I said, if the nightclub's down there. <laughs> so that, to be conformed to the world is a tremendous pressure on all of us to do that to be like the world, to fit in. And what Paul, what God is asking us to do is to be different. To, in, in living for him, we're different from the world. Other places we're called aliens, just passing through because we're maybe in the world, but we're not a part of it. We're not a part of all this mess that's going on. 
we're set apart by God, we're different. And so that's what he means, don't be conformed. And also, the other side of the coin is, but instead of being conformed, so that's something that you've been doing all your life until Christ came into your life, but now let something else happen. And this is more of a pass in a passive sense. No longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So your mind has always been conformed to everything that's going on in the world. I've got to fit in. I've got to go along with the crowd. I've got to be like everybody else. But now, you're not conformed. Instead, this passive sense of, last week we studied the filling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now we allow God, we yield, we allow God to transform us from the inside out. That's that gradual, progressive sense of the changing of our life as we grow spiritually and let Christ change us. Our attitudes, our desires who we are, what we do, where we go, all that to be transformed. So the, no more conforming, now be transformed. When I was, I was thinking of that, that old, uh, the first time I ever heard garbage in, garbage out. You ever heard of that? It's a computer expression. I was at the University of Texas in 1972 trying to get out of there. And my last course I had to take, and I had to take an exam, was computer. And those days, they had that giant computer down there at Texas. And yeah, and you had to, it was all those cards. And just to do some, I mean, this huge computer, about as big as this whole room, just to do some little simple task. And you had to type little holes in all these cards. And I remember that box was about that long with all these cards just to do some little task. And so I finally got, after spending 30 minutes, you know, I stuck all those cards in there, and the guy processed it, and it came back. And the message was just gobbledygook. <laughs> what happened? I mean, it just drove me nuts. And the guy says, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> so I had to go through each card to find the one. And there was one little card with a wrong hole punch deal. I finally found that and replaced it and then replayed it again and it came out right. And that's the way our brains work too. Garbage in, garbage out. What do you fill your brain with? And what Paul's saying is you need to starve it of all the evil and rebellion and garbage that's in the world and you need to fill it with all the things of God so that God can then transform you by the renewing your mind will be changed your thinking will be different and you'll become a, a new and different person in Christ so be transformed inwardly by the renewing of your mind and if you do that what will happen that you may prove they'll see your life and prove up what the will of God is that you be that you act that which is good and acceptable and perfect, that you live holy, righteous lives for him. Another easy way of putting that is more of him and less of me. More of him and less of me. What do you fill your mind with? How much input do you get from both places, right? And so that's 
That's what he's saying, be transformed. It's a process. It's a gradual transformation. Okay? Um, and so in verse 3 through uh, verse 16, now he's going to give you an application of what he means by that. If you have transformed lives, if you begin living for Christ, if you have put your body, uh, presented your body as living sacrifices and you're now living for Christ, verse 3, the first thing is you're going to be humbled because now it's no longer I am the greatest philosophy. It's now Christ is the greatest philosophy, right? And there's humility in that. You're actually recognizing that it's not about you. You're actually recognizing that you're a sinner, that you have weaknesses and failures. And you can only live the life in Christ. And so it's about him. So that's, that's humbling, right, to start off with. So he says in verse 3, and by the way, you have two relationships in the, in the biblical view and in God's view, you have two relationships and so he's going to give one application in your relationship with the church, your relationship with other believers. And then the second application he's going to give is about your relationship with the world, with everybody else. And so he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to you, by grace he means the gift that God has given to him to write the word of God, to reveal God's will, I say to every man among you, every person among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. In other words, humble yourself and think of other people. Treat other people as if they're more important than you are. And why? Because you're living for, for Christ. And that's God's view, that he uses you to serve other people and, and help them and meet their needs. So not to think more highly of himself than he ought to, but instead to think so as to have sound judgment. And of course, the sound judgment is God is Lord and I'm not. He's the master, I'm the servant. So as to think to have sound judgment, uh, and as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, and what he's going to be talking about, he has given to each of us something that we can do, some uh, gift that His Spirit is going to give us. We, we're all born with talents and, and abilities, but God has also, through His Spirit, also given us spiritual gifts. And what He's going to say is use those gifts, as well as your talent and abilities, to help others, to serve others. That's your spiritual worship of God as well, to help His people. Just like he told Peter, remember? He said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, then feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And that's what he's saying here in a different way. So verse 4, just as we have many members in one body, so uh, he's going to use the analogy of the human body. You know, in the human body you've got fingers and hands and toes and eyes and, and uh, ears and nose and all that has a function, but it all works together for the body to function efficiently. And so he's likening the body of Christ, the church, to, to that same thing. And God has gifted, gifted some to be hands and some to be eyes and ears and nose and mouth and feet so that the whole church being together operates efficiently. 
where he says, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, each member of the body has a different function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. So that's the analogy he's using to express what the body of Christ is, the church. There's many people and they all have a different function to serve. One body in Christ and indeed individually members one of another. We're connected with that bond in Christ. We're connected in the church. And since we have gifts, there's the spiritual gifts. God has given each person, everybody, a gift. And they all differ according to the grace given to us. Let each exercise them accordingly. Let everybody step up and show up and serve in some way. If prophecy, if, if God's given you uh, his word to, to prophesy, to speak, according to the portion of his faith, as much as you can, if service, and by, by far the, the most gifts are going to be in the serving area. So almost everybody has serving gifts in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts, encourages in his exhortation. And he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So that's just a, a short list that's not exhaustive. He gives other lists in other parts of uh, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Also, he lists these. So it's not exhaustive. I think there, you could even say there's probably as many gifts as there are people. Because if you say, well, I have a speaking gift, well, well my speaking gift's different than Billy Graham's gift. And our minister's got a different kind of, so I mean, everybody, everybody that speaks has got a different kind of gift slightly. Uh, and so it's, it's a whole bunch of, everybody's got something and everybody's useful and God expects each of us to show up and uh, serve, all right? And then what would be our motivation? Why would we do this? Or what would be the attitude that we'd show up to serve? Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. So that's the opposite. Uh, if you show up for personal gain or you show up because you want to uh, acclimate or promote yourself for any kind of selfish reason, uh, you're you would be guilty of hypocrisy. But he's saying, not you. You show up in love. You love Christ, and you're going to transfer that love to Christ's people. So be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. So you treat them, as he started out saying, you treat people uh, even better than yourself, and you don't think of yourself as, as too high to, to serve. In fact, we're all to serve. And in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, but instead fervent in spirit. You know, work hard, do a good job. See it as serving the Lord. You know, if you're putting out the chairs or if you're taking the offering or whatever you might be, just encouraging people, helping them in any way, what you, the bigger picture that you really see is that, you know, I'm not just helping these people or this person. I'm doing this for the Lord, a higher calling. So serving as for the Lord there in verse 11. Your attitude, rejoicing in hope, persevering 
in tribulation, even if things get tough, you overcome it. Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. This is all part of the church, the worship service, the part of being in the body of Christ, all these things. Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute. And what, what about, you know, when people give you a hard time, which they do. That's what people do, right? They're good at that. But he said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. So rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but, be, but associate with the humble. So think of yourself and have a humble perspective about yourself and don't see yourself as greater than or better than other people. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And then now in uh, verse 17, he switches gears. In verse 17, as I said, the, the second application, the first application was for the church, for fellow believers, but now... Uh, beginning in verse 17, he switches gears. Okay, what's your relationship to the rest of the world, to unbelievers in the world? And, of course, the world we live in is, is typified by conflict. <laughs> You're going to have conflict. We don't like it. I hate it. But it's, it's a way of life in a fallen world. You're always, we are always going to have conflict as long as we're in these bodies and in this fallen world, there's going to be conflict. We'll never be free of it as long as we live. You would like to think if you really did the right thing and you lived like he had just said, that there wouldn't be any conflict. But that, that's not the way it works. In the real world, there is constant conflict. And typically... How are we going to respond in that conflict? I'll show them who's boss, right? <laughs> or if they get the first blow in on you, what are you going to do? Revenge! That's natural. And we justify it by saying, well, this is what he deserves, he or she deserves. You know, this is justification here, right? And, of course, the problem with that is we're terrible judges. We're not judges of, what's, of what is uh, the correct retribution at all. I mean, if they give you a hangnail, you classically break off their arm. <laughs> That's human nature. You know, that, oh, yeah, well, I'll show you. And so, revenge. And so the, what he's going to say in verse 17 through 21, just a few of the uh, principles that he's going to lay out here is overcome evil with good. Let your goodness, your kindness overwhelm them. Disarm them, you might say. Overcome evil with good. Overcome conflict with kindness. Secondly, you've got to forgive. People are going to do these things and God expects us to forgive. I mean, God's basically saying, do you realize how much I forgave you? And you're telling me you can't forgive a little bit when I gave a lot? The Greek word for forgive in the New Testament literally means to let it go. 
And it depends solely on you. And, and God expects it. He forgave you. He wants you to forgive them. Let it go. And when you do, when you let it go, when you forgive, you discover that you have freed a prisoner. And that prisoner was you. Because as long as you're bitter and angry and obsessed with revenge, it eats you alive. And when you give that up, it's like being free again. So forgive. Uh, next principle is your first priority is your witness for Christ. So it's, you know, when you say, oh, yeah, they can't do that to me. No, I live for Christ. That's my priority. So I'm going to be able to forgive. I'm going to be able to let this go. I'm going to be able to, as, we, as you said earlier, kill him for kindness because I'm living for Christ. This is about Christ. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. I live for Christ. But in Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter, the whole letter is about what Peter calls innocent suffering. His audience is getting beat up pretty bad by the Roman authorities. And he's saying, look, what we're trying to do, we're trying to witness to these pagans and turn them, convert them to Christ. So if you suffer innocently underneath their persecution, it might win some of those to Christ. And of course it did. They won eventually. It took a couple hundred years, but they eventually won the whole Roman Empire. That's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? So that's your first priority. And then, of course, we read here, the next principle is no revenge, no personal revenge. Look what he says. Verse 18, if possible, if it just depends on you, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So, I mean, it may not be. They, they may not leave you alone. But as far as it depends on you, never take your own revenge. Never take your own revenge. You know, you, you, somebody uh, said, uh, don't, get, don't go to bed angry. And I said, I stay up late and plot revenge. <laughs> no. Just the opposite. You got to get your, rid of it or it will tear, tear you up. So never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. This is great logic. You want real justice? You want to make sure that the justice, the righteousness is perfect? Let God do it. Know that there's a day of judgment and God's going to take care of this. So he says, never take your own revenge, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So leave room for the wrath of God. Let God do it. He'll take care of this. But instead, this is what you do. You don't take revenge, but instead, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. So that's that sense of shaming him with kindness and goodness and being polite. And it'll disarm him or her. That's the idea. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me give you a mental image of how crazy human revenge is. You remember back, take, let me take you back to 1993. The Texas Rangers 
were playing the Chicago White Sox. I think it was right out here. And what happens is Nolan Ryan is pitching, and he hits the batter, Robin Ventura. Remember this? Now, if Roman, if, if uh, Nolan Ryan hits Robin Ventura, what's he got to do? He's got to charge the mound. And if Robin Ventura charges the mound, then Nolan Ryan's got to get him in a headlock and pound on his head for a while. And if Nolan Ryan pounds on his head, then the Chicago White Sox bench has got to empty onto the field. And if they empty on the field, the Rangers have got to empty on the field. And if they all empty on the field, it's just a wild melee for the rest of the night. <laughs> Chaos, mayhem. And it leaves the guys at home going, what happened? That's the world we live in, isn't it? It's chaos and mayhem. And everybody's going, how did that just happen? What started this incredible eruption of violence in the Middle East? And how is it spilling over into Europe and everywhere else? This is the human race. This is how they respond to conflict. They're crazy. And that's what you end up with. I think back, think of all the literature, the novels, and the, and the movies that have been made about revenge. I mean, it's, I mean, basic human conflict really uh, is in all the novels and, and in all the movies practically. I remember, remember Nevada Smith, Steve McQueen. They make the mistake of killing his parents. So the rest of the movie, he's chasing those three bad guys. McQueen goes through every imaginable horror, even puts himself in prison so he can kill one of these guys. And after a full lifetime of chasing these three guys down, he finally catches the last guy. And I mean, the guy is so pathetic, he ends up just walking away from him. Remember, you're down in that mud in the river, and, and he's yelling and everything, and McQueen just says, you're not even worth shooting. What, did, what good did it do him to live that way and how miserable Steve McQueen was? And, of course, that, uh, that classic Academy Award movie, Rambo. <laughs> Rambo. Remember that movie? This soulful war hero comes back, just a wonderful guy, and he's mistreated. Rambo is insulted. He's arrested by this town sheriff in this, this little town he's roaming through and just beat up and insulted and just we're feel for him. He escapes. The police come after him. He wipes out the entire police force. But that's not enough. The National Guard come for him. The, the police chief calls the National Guard. The National Guard comes out. Rambo wipes out the National Guard. That's not enough. 
Rambo gets one of the National Guard trucks with this big machine gun and he goes into town and he wipes out the rest of the police force and, and, and knocks out the sheriff and everybody. And the whole time this is going on, we're going, yes, Rambo, get him, Rambo. We're on Rambo's side. And then the movie ends, Rambo's walking out of the town and the whole town blows up right behind him. You know, there's nothing left but just embers to this whole town, the whole population, the whole National Guard taken out by Rambo and the crowd's cheering. This is the human race. They failed. We failed to recognize that because Rambo, they were mean to him. So he wiped out the population of the whole area. <laughs> and we thought it was justified. We were on Rambo's side. Exactly. That's the problem <laughs> with us seeking revenge, with the human race being a judge of what should be done. Right? So let me close with... Uh, Again, going back to giving yourself to God, let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Give yourself to the Lord. And in verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. We've given ourselves to the Lord. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, Christ died for us, therefore we die to the old person and we're now alive in Christ. And he did die for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. And then he goes on to say, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's why Christ came, to reconcile us to God and not counting their trespasses against them. And, and God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. You're no longer who you used to be, living for yourself. You're now, you've given yourself wholly to the Lord, and you are ambassadors for Christ. You live for him. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for loving us so that you sent your Son into the world to die for our sin. And now, Lord, may we all be convicted to give up our lives, give our lives to you, a holy, living sacrifice. And now we serve you and live to glorify you. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Yay! Thank you.